Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, continues in his series on the letters to the churches in Revelation. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. want to be different. It does require some effort, doesn't it? It requires some cooperation on our part with Christ. He makes the changes, but we have to align ourselves with Him. We continue our series called, Can You Hear Me? Are you hearing? You trying? Keep on. Don't be discouraged. Keep on. Sometimes it's, it's a process to learn to hear or to recognize what you have been hearing. This series is subtitled Letters from God, and it refers to messages that Jesus sent to the seven churches in what was then called Asia Minor, but today is Turkey. And he sent them through John, actually an angel, the scripture says, delivered it to John. And these letters are found in two chapters of Revelation, or the Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. We gave out handouts a few weeks ago, and they're still available at the bookstore and the information desk. I listed several verses, a number of verses that just tell us that God still speaks. You know, relationships require communication. You say, well, doesn't God only speak through the Scripture? No, He does speak through the Scripture, but He'll also speak to you. But what He says to you individually won't ever violate what He's revealed in the Scripture. And the Spirit even sometimes inspires and applies scriptures to us. So the other side of this handout, which you can also find it online, brookwoodchurch.org slash hearing God, we have organized the um, letters into different characteristics. Not every letter has all of these, but we're learning how to hear God. And each week we're doing part of this as an assignment. Two weeks ago, we asked God if he had a personal greeting for us. This past week, we asked what his affirmation is. And so we'll turn next week to his concern. If you take out your message guide, and all this instruction is also on the back of the message guide, James 4.17, Mark Taylor gives us a lot of good information in these handouts. And the, the memory verse says, remember... It is sin to know what you ought to do, and then what? You don't believe that, do you? It is sin to know what we ought to do and not do it. In these letters, Jesus examined each church, recognized and encouraged their strengths, also pointed out weak areas that needed improvement to prepare them not only for coming persecution, but also so that they could have an influence and be lights in the communities in which we, they lived. So these letters are written to us as well because they're inspired. Now, not everything in every letter applies to each of us, but some of it does. 
Has anybody seen themselves in any of the letters we've covered so far? Let me see hands if you've seen anything from God to you. Okay. Today we look at the message to the church in Pergamum. We're in Revelation chapter 2. We begin at verse 12 with the greeting. Write this letter to the angel. Tell me again who the angel is. Church leader, pastor perhaps, or elder, because the word angel actually is translated messenger. The angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, this church, we don't know for sure, it doesn't, it's not referred to in Acts, but the church was likely founded by Paul during his third missionary journey. Acts 19 refers to that. Pergamum was located 100 miles north of Ephesus, which we dealt with in the first week of this series, 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So it was not a port city. It was not located on any major trade route. However, it was a very significant city. In fact, considered Asia's greatest city because it was the provincial capital for 250 years. The city was an important center for idol worshiper, for idol worship. There were four temples to the Greek gods, Athena, Asclepios, who was the god of healing, and had a symbol of a snake encircling and entwined around a staff, which some of you are doctors, you know that's still the medical the symbol for medicine today, Dionysius and Zeus, so four temples. However, the city of Pergamum focused and stressed the worship of the emperor above the worship of any of these Greek gods. In fact, this city was so zealous about worshiping the Roman emperor that Christians were in danger more there than any other city. I told you that the Christians had to once a year offer a sacrifice of what? What did they have to offer? Say it louder. Incense. They burned a pinch of incense and they declared what? Yeah, Caesar is Lord. That's what they had to say once a year, but not so in Pergamum. In Pergamum, they were under pressure continually to express loyalty to the emperor. This city does exist today as a Turkish city called Bergama. So we look back to Revelation Revelation chapter 2, continuing in verse 12. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now this description comes from the vision that John had of Jesus in Revelation 1, 12 through 17. And so you see in each letter, part of that vision applied to each church. But the sharp two-edged sword represents what? Yeah, it represents the Word of God. Uh, Ephesians 6, 17 says the sword of the Spirit, but also Hebrews 4 talks about the double-edged sword, dividing uh, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And this introduction pictures Jesus as the executor of judgment. According to his word, Revelation 19, 15. So this letter begins with a somewhat threatening introduction. Not a positive promising one. And the reason is that this church was facing imminent judgment because of her compromise with the world. Which means tolerating 
accommodating, even embracing worldly values, beliefs, and behaviors that violate the Bible. Now, compromise happens almost imperceptibly, doesn't it? You just move a little bit. You just swallow a little bit of what you're hearing, and you hardly notice that you're offline. It's just a little bit at a time until you look up and you're way off of God's path. So compromise will eventually lead to forsaking God altogether because when you gain some awareness of where you are and how you're living, you have a choice to make. Do I forsake how I'm living, what I'm believing, and return to God, or do I stay here and forsake God? Because although our culture says you can hold both together, you can't. You can't. And it results in incurring judgment. You say, well, but God doesn't judge his people. Does he? Yeah, he, but the word that the scripture uses, Hebrews chapter 12 in particular, is he disciplines us for our good. He punishes the lost in judgment. He disciplines the saved. It's still judgment, but it's corrective to bring us back into alignment, back into closer relationship. Now, as we begin... Let's each of us, just in a a few seconds, ask God whether he sees or the spirit within sees compromise within us. That's your question right now as we start. Spirit, show me compromise within me. And spirit, show us compromise within our church that needs to be corrected. This letter to the church at Pergamum includes also affirmation. Verse 13. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Now, sometimes when we read a a verse like that, we don't know for sure what the reference is to. It may be to one of these temples to one of the four Greek gods. There was a huge, a massive altar to Zeus. So it could be a reference to that. It could be to the temple of, for emperor worship because this was where the very first one was established in Asia. But it might just be referring to the fact that there were so many idolatrous temples. There was an abundance of pagan worship. And it was authorized by Rome And it was enforced under threat of punishment. And so Jesus continues through John. Yet you have remained loyal to me. Despite the pressure to practice idolatry. As well as the persecution and the suffering that occurred when when these pagan practices were refused. These believers in Pergamum remained faithful to Jesus. And he continued, you refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful servant, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Antipas was likely 
a leader of the church. We don't know any more about him than this. But he was put to death for his faith. Now, tradition says it was the Roman emperor Nero who put him to death. And tradition also says that Antipas was placed inside a brass bull and then wood was placed under it and the fire lit so that he was actually roasted to death inside this bull. And the people witnessed it. And Jesus said, you remain faithful despite observing, watching in horror this cruel death. Antipas is referred to as witness. And the English word witness translates a Greek word, martus. Well, that word martus is transliterated, which means transliteration is when you take a word from one language and you just place it in another one without translating it. So the Greek word martus is transliterated into what word? Martyr. Martyr. So it's actually a Greek word. But a martyr was put to death for testifying as a witness about his or her faith in Jesus. And so that's why the word martyr actually means witness. You know, some of us grew up in, in churches, particularly Southern Baptist churches or other Baptist churches, which I grew up in as well. And we were always heard, you're supposed to be witnessing, you're supposed to be witnessing. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever felt guilty because they weren't? Well, here's the issue. We think or we thought that in order to witness, we had to know a lot of Bible verses. We had to be able to explain creation. We had to know all these answers. But all we're asked to do by Christ is testify. And that means tell what you saw and heard. When I was practicing law a hundred years ago, I would, I would get witnesses in uh, lawsuits and I would try to go over their testimony with them. And many of them said, tell me what to say. Does that surprise anybody? And many lawyers were only too glad to tell them what to say. But Christian lawyers can't. And so I would say, well, you say what you saw. You say what you know. And if it doesn't line up with somebody else, it's still your testimony. Well, folks, that's what Christ is asking us to do. Tell what you know. Say what you see and saw. Reflect on what you've heard. You don't have to defend anything else. You just tell your story. You'll have to have verses memorized because you know what happened to you, don't you? Jesus commended these Pergamini Christians who refused to not to deny Jesus, rejected worshiping idols, even when they were confronted by the death of a church member, martyred for his faith. Here's the point. 
we must, we must get. Neither persecution nor saint, satanic oppression, we believe in demonic oppression, can destroy genuine saving faith. If you have experienced Christ, been born again, that means you have been changed and that experience is undeniable. And it doesn't matter what it costs you. It's who you are. It's now your identity. You're denying yourself. You're denying what you know. So the question we ask here is, am I, are you loyal to Jesus even when pressured by others? In this letter, Jesus expresses also concern. Verse 14. But I have a few complaints against you. Specifically, Jesus is concerned about false beliefs being tolerated in this church. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. Who knows anything interesting about Balaam? Who said that? Yeah, he had a talking donkey. That's right. That's right. So don't be surprised when an ass speaks. <laughs> who's, who's <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, I know what I just implied. I'm not that slow on the uptake. <laughs> Whose teaching is like that of Balaam, Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. You can read this Numbers 22 through 25 and also 31. King Balak was a Moab of Moab, a Moabite. He was afraid of the Israelites. The army had, had conquered. And so he paid this prophet Balaam to curse Israel. So he found the prophet. He said, I'm, I'm going to pay you because I want you to put a curse on these people because I'm scared of them. And so three times Balaam attempted to curse. He prayed for God to bring a curse. Every time God refused to curse them, instead God blessed them. So Balaam's in trouble because he's already cashed the check. So he comes up with another scheme. He conceived of another idea. And he advised the king of Moab to corrupt Israel, in particular the Israelite men, the soldiers, by using Moabite women to lead them into the sexually centered worship of the god Baal. So it was an enticement. Now, leading these Jewish men into sexual immorality caused them to, they compromised their convictions. They were responsible. 
to defile themselves, to dishonor God. And God punished this disobedience, executing 24,000 of his own people. Numbers 25. And then later, sending an army through Moses to kill many of the Midianites and all of their kings and his own prophet Balaam. Numbers 31. So we continue at verse 15. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. So these Pergamenes also tolerated people in their midst who followed a New Testament man named Nicholas, who may have actually been one of the very first group of of deacons. But Nicholas and those that followed him were teaching that the grace of God allowed them to indulge in sin without any consequences. Sound familiar? Now, Balaam and the Nicolaitans both encouraged immorality and idolatry among God's people. Now, let me say just a word and and give you a resource. I understand when we teach, when I teach passages like this, they're a little complicated because you say, well, I don't know anybody like that. Well, there's some Moabites in Malden. And there's some Nicolaitans in Fountain Inn. And there's a few of them sitting in here with us. But what we have to do is we have to discover who these people were, what they taught, and then we cross the bridge to a modern-day application. You don't have any trouble applying sexual immorality to today, but you really don't have any trouble applying idolatry to today either, do you? You say, well, how do I learn? Well, there's a good tool, Expositor's Bible Commentary, two volumes, you can buy it for less than 50 bucks, or you can go on BibleHub.com for free. But you do have to understand what, who were these people in their original setting? And then you make an adjustment today. And the reason that we can is because people have not changed. And neither has God. So the principles, the, the, the way God worked with these people still applies today. We just have to adjust it for our time setting. Does that make sense? The church at Pergamum apparently was tolerating people who claimed to be Christians but defiantly disobeyed God, engaged in immorality, and practiced idolatry. And they encouraged others in the church to do the same. Well, how does this relate to us? Well, we act like these people, the Moabites and the Nicolaitans, when we willingly engage in sexual immorality that we know from God's word is wrong. See, I know this in our culture, even in a lot of the Christian culture, premarital sex is just a given. It's not a given in God's word. And we become idolatrous when we 
are worshiping at the altar of our culture's altars and idols. What are our culture's idols? Money, power, possessions. But you see, what's happened is we just took this little step into and so I'm living, I'm living like this, but, but, I mean, so are other people. I mean, I'm not any more materialistic than a few folks I know. In fact, a few folks are sitting up there on the front row. So, so, so how could I be wrong? And we just, we, just, we just keep on slipping, don't we? And then we look up, and we can't find God anywhere around in our presence. And we wonder why. But we worship at the altar of possessions, positions. All right, now, I might get personal now. Y'all ready? I'm t- you know, that Zeus's temple was, altar was huge. I've seen a few big altars around the upstate. Have y'all? Huge. People's attention, their emotions, their money, their devotion, their time. Y'all hearing me? Anything that dissuades me from God is an idol. Anything that crowds out, blocks off, diminishes, frustrates my interest in God is an idol. So there's idols popping up all over this room. And everybody's got their own, don't they? But we have to say, okay, God, I I am so immersed in this, I can't see it. You, by your spirit, has to show it to me. And when we're doing these things and living these ways, we, we still presume the forgiveness of God. And by our words, but at least by our actions, we're teaching others to do this very same thing. Parents, your children are watching you. And you know what? The compromise you make in a little bit, they're going to make in a lot. Watch it. Watch it. So we act like the Pergamon church. Also, when we refuse to confront these attitudes in ourselves, but also in each other. Do I compromise what I believe, what I know to be true, so I can get along? So I can be accepted by some folks? I'm trying to get myself, I need to get my picture in some of these, you know, glossy magazines. I got to get along, you know. Jesus issued a challenge as well. He said, repent of your sin in verse 16. And see, the church's refusal to correct false teaching, to confront disobedient behavior was sin. So you can be in sin when you're silent? Can you? Yeah. 
when repentance is required, the word repentance, what's it mean, literally? To, to a change of mind, it, it's to think differently. Meta is after, neo is the mind or thinking. So it means to think after or to think differently. And so repentance is actually a change of mind that always results in a change of behavior. See, we think repentance is when I say something's wrong, but I still sort of continue in it. No. mm -mm. Because here's the other thing, and y'all heard me say this a hundred times, and a few of you believed it. We always do what we believe is right. Now, you may say, well, I did this, I know it wasn't right. No, you didn't think it wasn't right. You, You thought it was the thing to do or you wouldn't have done it. Because here's the thing, when, when we repent, suddenly what we sort of enjoyed suddenly looks like a rattlesnake and we jump away. So we see this sin as something to flee. That's repentance. And we go, how did I ever see it differently? Repentance is not merely admitting we've done something wrong or doing something wrong. It includes ending the behavior, moving in the opposite direction toward Christ. Here's a, here's a question. Am I willing to repent of compromising with sin? Am I willing in myself but also in others. See, we think we're being good Christians saying nothing. And this verse says, if you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, that includes caring about others. You see? That includes caring about others. So we think, oh, I'm being loving by being silent. You may not be. You may be that may be the opposite of love. Jesus said, unless the church changed, there would be consequences. Verse 16. Continue in verse 16. Or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them. And the them is, are those who refuse to repent with the sword of my mouth. Which means Christ's judgment, Christ's punishment, Christ's discipline is always according to his word. Never according to the cultural standard. And so the church, our church, other churches must obey God's word. We can't tolerate and indulge belief, actions, and attitudes that are contrary to biblical teaching. Or Christ will judge us. Folks, you know this. Our our landscape really countrywide, but even in the South, is littered with churches who have and are soon to put to a vote whether they believe what the Bible says about immorality. Put it to a vote. On these issues, there's only one opinion that matters, and it is not mine, and it is not yours. But I want you to hear me on this. The church is not a place where people are to to be scolded and humiliated either. I mean, how many of us grew up in a church 
with somebody that we felt was just beating us up every week. How many of you grew up in a church like that? And you thought, well, what's motivating him? And you were told, well, that's righteous preaching. That's not righteous preaching. That's angry preaching. His wife might have fussed at him that morning, so he is letting you have it today. And so it's easy for pastors to act like they're being righteous when they're really just mad. And they're mad at you and they're mad at somebody else and they're mad at somebody they don't know. But it's, it's anger. It's not righteous. The anger of man doesn't do the will of God, is what Scripture says. So we don't scold, we don't humiliate it, we don't shout, we don't embarrass. But you know what? We have to confront, but we confront humbly, lovingly. Because we need people to have the opportunity to be convicted and change. See, we understand that with our children, don't we? If you never discipline your child, is that loving? No. We discipline so they become more righteous. We actually discipline children so they can exercise self-discipline and then yield themselves to God's discipline. But God disciplines us unto righteousness to turn us back to him. So here's the question. Am I willingly, am I willing to graciously, humbly speak the truth in love to someone I care about who's living disobediently? That made some of you nervous. But it's not peace at any price. But what if they reject me? That's their choice. You see, you're responsible for you to God. And you're responsible for your attitude and your manner in expressing truth. You can't control their response. But you have to be okay with obeying God. Otherwise, our church turns into just another social club. And we have whole denominations in this country that are nothing but social clubs, basically. They may be doing some good social works, and we commend that, but good social work is not the gospel. We do both. We help people practically, but we help them spiritually, or so we can help them spiritually. If the church responds obediently, Jesus gives rewards. Verse 17, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. This is in every letter. Are you listening to the Spirit? Hear me again. I don't think this is easy. I was probably past 50 before I even believed that God still spoke. Hear but I'm here to tell you, he speaks. But it might take some practice to be able to hear, okay? So please, keep walking with me. Keep trying this. Get your notebook. Ask your question. Write what you think he's saying. And what will happen is you'll gain more confidence as you begin to recognize his voice, what it sounds like, the tone, the weight, 
the subject, the thought wasn't something you would have conceived of. And you begin to recognize it. You hear what I'm saying? You're about to get happy down here, aren't you? But Jesus stressed the importance of Christ's words and a Christian's responsibility to hear and heed. So we must practice hearing and obeying when the Spirit speaks. See, we can't, we can't do this thing where we say, well, God tell me and then I'll decide. A lot of us take God's word, whether in print or, or um, you know, through the Spirit, as, a, as an opinion we'll consider. But we have to say, if you'll tell me so I can know, I will automatically do it without fail. But it's okay to say, but you've got to tell me so I know. Let me hear it. Let me read it. Let me be encouraged by another person. To everyone who is victorious, and this is all believers, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, I will give some of the manna that's been hidden away in heaven. What was manna? Bread, food. What does the word mean, the Hebrew word mean? What is it? You need to come up here, I'm going to give you a star. Manna was like a, a honey-flavored wafer that would appear every morning except the Sabbath. And so the Israelites would gather it to eat it during their years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, two quarts of manna are stored somewhere. Where were they stored? In the Ark of the Covenant. Where is it? We don't know where it is. But there's two quarts in the Ark. And there's a, two other items. Well, actually three other items. But two of different kinds of items are also in that ark. What were they? The tablets of the commandments. And Aaron's rod that budded. Three items. Or if you four, including the two tablets. But this is manna hidden away in heaven. So it's not the wafer on the ground. The manna hidden away in heaven is what? It's Jesus Christ. I used what instead of whom because that would have given it away. Because Jesus is the bread of life come down from heaven. John 6, 48 through 51. And he's the bread that provides you spiritual sustenance as his children. God fed his children in the wilderness. Well, aren't you in a wilderness? And he's feeding you. Are you eating? And I will give to each one a white stone. Now, there's some debate about the meaning of this stone. But this is the one that I think is most likely. The Romans awarded a white stone to the winner of an athletic contest. That stone would be inscribed with the victor's name. That same stone with, with his or her name on it served as a ticket into a special awards banquet. And that banquet obviously represents a believer's entrance into the supper in heaven, the Lamb's Supper, the victory celebration in heaven. So he's given you a stone, your name's on it. It only admits you. 
Verse 17, continue. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now, you know what this means. This means God knows you better than you know yourself. And here's the thing. There won't be anything on that stone that says loser, addict, failure. There's going to be a word for you on that stone that shows how God knows you better than you know yourself. But when you look at that stone and you hear that name, you'll say, that's me. And that's how God sees me. See, the missing element in a lot of our lives is we don't know our identity in Christ now. But when we step into heaven, that stone will be even more definitive for who we are to him for all eternity. Are you eager to receive your white stone? Well, let's live heavenward. Let's follow his word. Let's get closer each and every day. Counselors, you come to the front. Counselors are here. You know, they'll talk to you about questions about the Bible. They'll talk to you about receiving Christ. They'll just pray with you. They'll anoint you with oil for healing, and they'll be here as long as you need them. So you come on down. Soul training, which is on the back of your message guide. Soul training for this week is the issue of concerns. We've dealt with the personal greeting from God. What do you call me? How do you refer to me? Words of affirmation and concerns. And we suggest the way you begin this prayer with this letter. This concerns I have, the concerns I have about you are. You write that down and you say, Lord, what are your concerns about me? Now, we don't want to be afraid. Some of us are so, so sensitive about any criticism. He, see, this is... His words of love to bring us closer to Him. And sometimes we need some things brought to our attention, don't we? So, but we can't just say, don't criticize me, don't criticize me. Because we lived in that all our lives. We say, no, no, God, you tell me what you want to see changed. And He loves us. But He might see some things that need changing. How about that? Can you take that? Okay. So use the sentence. Write it in a notebook. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us, Lord, to allow no compromise in our own lives. And Lord, let us not ignore compromise in others' lives. Let us be instruments of your righteousness so that your gospel will shine in this community. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 in order to get in contact with our Connections team. 
You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day. Thank you.